0: According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me once again in Philippians chapter 3 this morning. Philippians chapter 3, we are dealing with Paul and his boasting. Part of his uh, autobiography that he's going to spend a few verses boasting about, and then he's going to uh, write it all off. He's going to uh, dismiss it all and say uh, all of that is beside the point in uh, terms of uh, his earthly qualifications. As we see here uh, in verse 4, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. And then he describes some of the things that he would brag about if he was that kind of guy. And, uh, and then, of course, he says, I'm not going to brag about any of that. Because whatever things were gained to me, in verse 7, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And so all these things that are to be counted as loss, and we want to uh, have the same perspective ourselves, we want to have the same attitude. If there's something that we're boasting in in the flesh, we've got to stop that, and just immediately reclassify that over in the uh, in the loss column of our profit and loss statement, and say... I'm not counting that as an asset. That is uh, that, that needs to go. And so uh, we'll see how this unfolds as we work our way through these verses. We're still dealing with verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, and as to the law, a Pharisee. And there's a lot of detail we've got to pull out of this verse before we can move on. So let's open with a word of prayer. Remember, God is spirit. He must be worshiped in spirit and in truth. Let's take a moment for silent prayer, giving each one of us the opportunity to settle our hearts, to humble ourselves, to be in fellowship. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word and the blessing we have this morning to assemble together. Father, this is Your grace provision uh, on our behalf. We thank You for it. We want to redeem this in every way, Father, for the glory of Your Son, for His good pleasure, for Your good pleasure, Father. We ask uh, for distractions to be set aside. We ask for humility, that with humility we might receive the Word implanted that's able to save our souls. So we call upon Your faithfulness, Father, to open the eyes of our understanding, to lead us. In the paths of righteousness, for your namesake, I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. So, as we follow the outline here, we uh, have been dealing with the uh, the different aspects of rejoice in the Lord as the chapter began, and then beware, 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 with the warnings there in verse two: the dogs, the evil workers, and the false circumcision. And then in point three, we are the circumcision, as it says in verse three. We are the circumcision. And now we're dealing with the boasting under point four. So if you are following along in the outline, it is main point four in the development. If any saint, Old Testament or New Testament saint, could boast in the flesh, it would be the Apostle Paul. Of course, he was called Saul of Tarsus, and then uh, the Apostle Paul once he crossed into the church age. Circumcised the eighth day indicates that Saul was born into an observant home. No, uh, this is maybe not something that he could boast in himself. He himself is not the boaster of this, and yet he is, because uh, he didn't have the choice to be circumcised. His parents made that choice on his behalf. Nevertheless, this is the culture that he was born into, and this is the uh, culture that he was brought up in, and from childhood he has known the Scriptures that are able to lead you to salvation. And so we have the application there, and we discuss this. Uh, of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. These are interrelated, but not exactly identical. And we want to understand the distinctions between them. Of the nation of Israel, particularly, they're not actually a, a functional nation at this point. They are uh, under the, the bonds of Rome. They've been, prior to Rome, they were under Persia. Prior to Persia, they were under Greece. Prior to Greece, they were under Babylon. They've been under Gentile dominion ever since 586 B.C. since Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem and uh, destroyed the temple and vacated the Davidic throne. That's going to be very important for upcoming studies. The aspect of the vacated Davidic throne. It will not be reseated until the second advent of Jesus Christ. It's still vacated to this day. Even though Jesus walked this earth for his earthly ministry in the first advent, he never laid claim to the throne that he was entitled to. He was, he was, and remains still waiting for the Father to give the Word until he can go forth and claim that throne, and that's Second Advent when he will be seated in Jerusalem on the throne of David. So, pay attention and 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 uh, uh, to some upcoming classes that we have as we're going to be dealing with the the vacated throne and the reseated throne that becomes very important. But the nation of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, this is a Trinitarian expression of superlative Jewish character, and we're going to deal with that. Did you have a question? No, nothing to do with God the Father, God the Son. Yeah, it's just a threefold expression of superlative Jewish character. All right. Uh, We did discuss the nation of Israel, the unified nation of Israel. In fact, it only existed historically under Saul, David, and Solomon even after Solomon's de- uh, after Solomon and even prior to the destruction of Jerusalem while there remained a Davidic throne for that whole line it was not a unified kingdom 10 of the tribes had had uh, gone rogue 10 of the tribes had broken free and and had formed a, a competing Jewish kingdom and uh, the the 10 tribes to the north that called themselves the kingdom of Israel and the two tribes in the south called themselves the kingdom of Judah and that uh, that's an important historical study as well to uh, to understand in that regard uh, with respect to that. The tribe of Benjamin, this was uh, Paul's tribe, and he was very proud of this tribe, and there's reason to be proud of this tribe. The tribe of Benjamin supplied Israel's first king, and uh, the aspects there in First Samuel nine twenty one. And in fact, it was a little surprising to Saul because Benjamin was such a small tribe, and uh, his clan was such a small clan within a small tribe and his father's house was a pretty small family within a pretty small clan within a pretty small tribe. And uh, these things that uh, kind of fly in the face of human expectations when uh, uh, really the whole process of this is a human endeavor. Uh, there's a bit of a rebellion on the part of the Jews. They want a king because they want to be like the Gentile nations surrounding them. And, uh, and Samuel, the prophet's warning them, saying, wait a minute, what do you want this for uh, we We have a king that 's god we th- we 're a theocracy. We have these twelve tribes, we have a priestly tribe we have God uh, over us, but uh, the people insisted, and God told Samuel to relax and 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 uh, under permissive will, God is going to give the people what they want even if uh, even if it 's not a good thing and so uh, in the permissive will of God, they get Benjamin. They get a, a king from the tribe of Benjamin so that when he gives them the man after his own heart, they see that God's provision is always better than what, uh, what we can pick out for ourselves and, and do these things. But reading from 1 Samuel 9, verse 21, when they're uh, making this selection, we have this, uh, this uh, disclaimer here. When Saul replies, Am I not a Benjamite? of the smallest of the tribes of Israel. I mean, if you're going to pick a king for Israel, you know, Benjamin's probably the 12th and last one you would look at. Uh, he was the youngest of the boys that was born, and, and remember his mother died in childbirth. He was the last of the children born, and it's the smallest of the tribes. Plus, the prophecy says that the scepter should not depart from Judah. I mean, they should have been looking to Judah for uh, for a king. So, uh, again, this is 1 Samuel 9 and verse 21. Am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel? Am I family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Remember, this is how they functioned within tribes and clans and families. And uh, to be of the smallest family of the smallest tribe, how, how do you end up king? Why then do you speak to me in this way? And uh, anyway, this is how it all unfolds. And this is uh, how the Lord provides. The tribe of Benjamin, not only did they supply Israel's first king, they were also promised prophetically to supply ravenous wolves. In fact, that statement in Genesis 49-27 I mentioned is the prophecy of the tribes that, uh, that uh, Israel delivers before he dies, Genesis 49. And this is also where we're told about the tribe of Judah being the, the tribe with the scepter, Genesis 49 In verse 27, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he devours the prey, and in the evening he divides the spoil. And so this is descriptive of the tribe itself. Uh, I believe there also are some eschatological components to this that uh, are examined when you go to the tribulation and you go to uh, the end times. We talk about different things related to Antichrist and the false prophet uh, with respect to the tribe of Benjamin, also with respect to the tribe of Dan. Why does Dan uh, have an adversarial uh, relationship with the Jewish people? Uh, during the coming tribulation. So those, those studies are important as well. Now this, this, uh, uh, prophecy of, of Benjamin being the ravenous wolf, it seems like Saul of Tarsus dedicated himself to fulfilling that single-handedly. <laughs> that he dedicated himself to be the, uh, wolf of all wolves, the, the, uh, the most violent of them all. And so in the church age then, in the book of Acts, when we see after the resurrection of Jesus, when Christianity is starting to spread and and uh, they're adding members and things are, are thriving, well, a bunch of Jewish uh, legalists don't want that to happen. They, uh, the Sanhedrin wants to stop that. The Pharisees want to stop that. Those that are opposed to Jesus want to stop that. And at this time, Saul is a part of that crowd. In fact, he's thriving in that, uh, in that environment. And so... Um, with the uh, execution of Stephen here, Stephen is uh, is stoned to death, and uh, at the end of chapter seven, so uh, when they stone him to death there, then uh, you'll notice at the end of chapter seven in verse fifty eight, the the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. He is present for this uh, for this event, and then they stoned Stephen. Chapter 8 begins, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And so you can see this ravenous wolf who's hard at work. Some devout men, in verse 2, Acts 8 2, buried Stephen and made loud lamentations over him. But Saul began ravaging the church. There's that word ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women, he would put them in prison. Okay? Now keep in mind, when he's doing all this, he's not an evil man. He's not a bad guy. He's a moral man. He's a good guy. He is serving the Lord, or he thinks he is, right? He believes he is serving the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel, because he is punishing what he thinks are those heretics, those followers of Jesus of Nazareth. See, and so he thinks he's serving the Lord in this murderous capacity. Over to uh, chapter 9, and we see more of that. Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. I mean, when do you get tired of that? When does that wear out? <laughs> you know, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So he goes to the high priest and asks for letters from him. To the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. I think we got here's our first prototype for Dog the Bounty Hunter, right? This is here's the the ravenous wolf, and he's going to go all the way to Damascus. He's actually going to violate Roman law to do this. In uh, in, in uh, you know he can't do enough murder in Jerusalem. Let's let's go find some more in in, in uh, Damascus. And let's drag them back to Jerusalem so they can stand trial at, uh, before the Sanhedrin and, uh, and aspects there. And of course, this was the event when he's on the way to Damascus and he's on that road when the light hits him and, and uh, he gets a, a block of instruction as to the one that he's been persecuting, all right? And uh, that's, uh, that's a powerful message on its own. Benjamin proved to be the only tribe loyal to the house of David. And I think that's a curious factor, too, in the sense that they were the tribe that produced the first king, and then when Saul died and, and the scepter did go to Judah and, and the house of David then became the ruling house, the tribe of Judah became the ruling tribe, I think it's a mark, uh, quite an interesting mark of uh, of humility and a mark of grace that uh, that Benjamin would submit to to Judah and not try to you know go join those rebels in the ten tribes to the north or try to reinstitute the uh, Saul uh, the line of Saul for a, uh, some kind of a kingship or anything of that nature. They stayed loyal and they remained uh, there located with Judah in the south and uh, stayed loyal in that. And if you want more on that, you get it in 1 Kings chapter 11 and 1 Kings chapter 12, some of the things that happened. God was very gracious. Even though Solomon died a loser, Solomon was horrible at the end of his life. And yet God, for David's sake, did not rip the kingdom away from Solomon until after Solomon died. He said, when your son becomes king, then I will rip this kingdom in half. And, and that's what ended up happening. So you can look to that then in, uh, in chapter 12. Finally, we got these phrases now, the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, and then a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Now, here's a superlative expression. And it's it's grammatically, it's superlative anyway, because this is how the Hebrew language would express it. It's like song of songs or uh, uh, other such expressions. When you double that up, then the Hebrew of the Hebrews would be the the greatest Hebrew uh, with respect to that. So it's superlative in and of itself, but it's also a linguistic expression. It's also a linguistic expression, identifying a native Hebrew speaker, in contrast to the broader Hellenistic Jewish population. And this, too, is a study that we get into, if you ever are in the book of Acts, and you see, particularly with the widows of Acts chapter 6, that there is a distinction between the native Hebrew-speaking Jews and the Hellenistic Greek-speaking Jews. And it was to such a point that even the native Hebrew-speaking Jews were technically more comfortable with Aramaic than they were with Hebrew, in any event. And the actual historical Hebrew language that uh, was pretty well limited to scribes, Pharisees, the priests, uh, in liturgical services, it was uh, not uh, the the language of the street. You would walk the street, you would hear uh, Aramaic rather rather than Hebrew. And yet here's the Apostle Paul. A Hebrew of the Hebrews, fluent in, in Latin and in Greek and Aramaic and Hebrew and all these things, and uh, it's, uh, it's a curious uh, aspect of this, all right? Acts chapter 6 and verse 1, backing up a little bit before the execution of Stephen. At this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. And so some of this, again, you've got to kind of read in between the Testaments, part of the history that happened after the Old Testament was concluded, but before the New Testament opened, is uh, the Hellenization of the, the ancient Near East. And, and what happened when Greek culture took hold uh, everywhere that Alexander went. All right, and, and You have the Ptolemies in Egypt, but it wasn't an Egyptian empire, it was a Greek empire in Egypt and you had the Seleucids in Syria but it wasn't a Syrian culture it was a Greek culture in Syria and all everywhere else that uh, that Alexander conquered became hellenized including uh Israel including Jerusalem including the surrounding territories there particularly Galilee Galilee was much more hellenized than uh, than Jerusalem Jerusalem did the best they could to uh to keep the native Hebrew going and uh, so, in the process of this, you end up with kind of a, a divided culture, and you might expect. Okay, and it's hard for us, but try to imagine now if, uh, if if America falls and we stop being America, and then some other culture comes in and tries to you know impose a different culture on top of our culture, uh, then what would happen with respect to? Uh, you know, maybe a certain segment just wholeheartedly embraces it and loves it and is happy to have this new culture, happy to have this new language and they get on board and they start speaking that language and they start, you know, but then there's the holdouts that remember the good old days that, that, uh, they want to, they want to go back to the way things used to be. See? And so, what's the dynamic between those two groups? It's pretty, pretty rough. Okay, because the faithful group is going to view the other group as uh, the, the progressive group, the modern group. Well, you're turncoats, you're traitors, you're you're uh, you're uh, denying your heritage and you're embracing these uh, this uh, this paganism of uh, of Greek philosophy and religion and everything else. So, uh, anyway, here's this complaint, and even within Christian circles. Now, I don't think these Christians were were prejudiced, but still, it was it was happening. There was a neglect that was happening that uh, these widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. And I think the, the language of overlooked maybe speaks more to it being inadvertent rather than intentional, you know, deliberately uh, prejudiced. But whatever the case, it still ends up that way and the widows need help. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the Word of God in order to serve tables. And remarkably enough, the complaint was voiced and the apostles said, Yes, this is a real deal. This is a real issue. This is a thing. It's got to be dealt with. But we're not the ones to deal with it. All right? We can't, uh, we can't fall short in the ministry, the Word of God and prayer, if we're serving tables. And so that we have here in this chapter the birth of the deacons. We have the the tradition, the first deacons that are selected, and Stephen was was first on the list here. So, uh, therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. All right? Deacons are appointed. Deacons are servants. Deacons are answerable to the spiritual authorities that appoint them. But they are put in charge... And so they have responsibilities to execute and uh, the delegated authority to do so. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So there you go. The spiritual leadership stays involved in spiritual leadership. They can supervise the deacons, make sure they stay on task, but they're not going to micromanage what they're doing because they put them in charge. You seven go deal with this. And then it says, the statement found approval with the whole congregation. And I love that. That found approval. This is where church votes come in. This is where the membership has the opportunity to voice their faith convictions. To voice what they approve. The faith that you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he that does not condemn himself in what he approves. All right. So we have the aspect there. It comes back again in chapter 21. When Paul is going to speak to the crowd in the Hebrew dialect, 2140, crossing into chapter 22, and this is where uh, when he talks to the uh, commander, the Roman commander in the barracks, uh, the the guy was surprised that Paul speaks Greek, and then then Paul is able to uh, address the people in the Hebrew dialect. In verse 39, Paul tells the the Roman, he says, I am a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city. That's why he speaks Greek. He grew up among the Hellenized Jews. However, he was not Hellenized. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. And so when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the stairs, motioned to the people with his hand. I love that. I said that Wednesday night too. Just motioned with his hand. And immediately that, you know, everyone goes quiet because that's how it works. And when there was a great hush, he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect saying, all right. And so chapter 22, then he's going to go through this again. It's in the Hebrew dialect 22.2. Two. When they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet. Say, wow, because that was so unusual. It was so unusual. 26.14 is the last use of it. In fact, uh, when he was recounting the uh, conversion experience, or the, I'm sorry, not conversion, but the Damascus Road experience, uh, the light shone upon him while he's on the Damascus Road, and he hears a voice calling to him in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me. All right. And so that's what we deal with with Hebrew of the Hebrews. In the Hebrew dialect, a native speaker, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And all these things are aspects for Paul to be bragging about. Now think about it. this, All three of these components, we have the nationality, we have the ethnicity, and we have the language. All right. And these are the things that we still struggle with to this day. (laughs) <laughs> all right uh, all the culture wars and all the arguments and all the back and forth and does uh, does a people group uh, have the right to defend themselves and to determine their boundaries and their and their uh, culture and their language see and uh, of course the adversary hates all of that the adversary is very hostile to anything God designed including the system of nations and languages that he put in place at the tower of battle all right Satan's been opposed to that ever since So uh we have aspects there. All right. Then as far as the rest of the things he's boasting about, uh we can kind of say that he he has no control over those first things, right? Where you're born and who your parents are and and that. You have very you know, no control over that. You you do start to get control as far as the languages that you that you learn and and speak and, and maintain. But when we get to these other items, now we start talking about things he totally has control in, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. And so these other expressions here that he's bragging about are things that, uh, yeah, he should brag about him because he, he did them. He worked hard to do all these things. Not everyone could become a Pharisee, and he became a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He became chief among them. He, became, he was advancing beyond his contemporaries. All right. As to the law, of Pharisee expresses the pinnacle of self-made sanctimony. All right. It really closes the argument. If if two people are discussing who's the better law keeper, and one of them says, uh, I'm a Pharisee, game over, right? That ends the argument. All you have to say is, I'm a Pharisee, and... That's it. Okay. Because they were set apart. That's what Pharisee means, the Hebrew pharaz, to set apart. And they were, they were set apart from even their fellow Jews, is the attitude there. Remember we talked about why Jews would call Gentiles dogs and how Jews, of course, are the chosen people and any Gentile, any non-Jew was, was automatically, you know, inferior, worse than a Jew. Well, that whole set apart attitude, the Pharisees took it one step further. They said, all right, even within the Jews, there's special people. And we are the special people, okay? So, yeah, Jews are the chosen people, but we are the special chosen people because we are even more set apart. We are the better law keepers than anybody else, okay? And that's what you end up with legalism. Legalism will always do that. If you want to go to a legalistic church, you know, I don't recommend it, but there you go. Have fun, knock yourself out, but just know this. Okay. That when you get there, when you start plugging into the legalism routine, that's a rough life. You've got to outdo the next guy. You're always in competition. You're always in comparison. And, you know, there's always a better legalist than you. And then you realize, oh, I've got to work harder and get better than them. Okay. I think this gets illustrated very well in Luke 18. As far as this goes, in Luke 18. And, uh, the pinnacle of self made sanctimony because uh, these guys are uh, praying and uh, the tax collector is not even willing to lift up his eyes. And this is uh, the contrast here. Jesus tells this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Well, first of all, your faith is supposed to be towards God, not trusting in yourself. And then viewing others with contempt Your faith is before the Lord, and it's not in comparison with any other person on this planet. It's not on the curve. We're not grading ourselves, well, I'm better than the next guy, so I guess I'm pretty good. No. (laughs) Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. (laughs) You know? What kind of a thank you prayer is this that thanks God for me being so awesome? You know, I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I mean, the guy in the pew right next to him. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. And so this, this whole litany of how great am I? What kind of prayer is that? the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And this is the humble attitude. This is the attitude we all should have in the sense that I didn't deserve to wake up this morning. Why do I have another day set before me? And let's stay faithful today, day after day, as long as it's called today, because I'm just an object of God's grace, an object of His mercy. This is the attitude, and so which one is justified on an experiential justification basis? Here, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. So when the when the synagogue service is all done, or temple service, whatever it is, and they're done and they go home, who was who's edified? Who's justified? Who's better off for having attended that prayer meeting that day? He wasn't the Pharisee. All right, and so. Uh, as it says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And this humble brag thing, some people, I mean, just specialize in this. And they get really, really good at their, their humble bragging at what they're doing, okay? And God's, God sees right through it. We're not, we're not fooling him, we're not fooling anybody in, uh, in these things as they're happening. All right, and so we have this uh, self-made sanctimony as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, expresses the pinnacle of self-made acrimony. All right? You have to prove that you're better than the next guy, and actions speak louder than words, so let me show you what a great believer I am, because I'm doing more for the Lord than you are in this hostility, this acrimony against Christians, against the, the way, as it was called. In the early days as to zeal a persecutor of the church now different ways that we can show zeal it's curious to me uh why do we want to show zeal to fellow human beings are we trying to make a splash do we want them to be impressed with us if we're going to show zeal let's just show zeal before the lord he sees the heart your father who sees in secret will repay let your zeal be in secret god knows what you're doing But when you're doing it on a display basis so that other people look at you and go, ooh, okay, well, you can do that, but the ooh is all the reward you're going to get. God the Father gives no additional reward beyond that human approbation you somehow obtained for yourself. Uh, Matthew 6 says you have your reward in full. That ooh is all you're getting. And uh, this becomes clear. I think uh, the, uh, the crusader mentality that's expressed here is uh, John 16.2, where, where doing these evil things in the name of good, how, how pathetic is that? Doing these evil things in the name of good, calling good evil and evil good, and in, the Bible says woe for those that engage in such things. Jesus warned about this. These things I have spoken to you, so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. You see that there, Acts sixteen two. They are self righteous. They think they're serving God, but they're killing you. You know the God who said, "Thou shalt not murder." And <laughs> what are they doing? They're serving God. The God who said, thou shalt not murder. They think they're serving God by murdering. How does that make any sense? Say, oh, but it's not murder if God wants you to do it. It's not murder if it's sanctioned, if it's authorized. If, uh, if uh, well, I mean, it's like a soldier on the battlefield, that's not murder? Or... Uh, Uh, capital punishment, that's not murder. If a judge orders the execution of a murderer, that's not murder. There are places in which God does sanction the taking of a human life. See? And so these religious zealots, they they kind of built on that theme, and they expanded that theme, and they said, well, look, you know, Joshua in the conquest, he was supposed to drive out all the the idolaters and, and drive them out and take the land. So, that's all we're doing. We're serving God by murder. But it's not murder. See? And so they found a way to justify it. And he got letters from the chief priest to go all the way to Damascus and murder even more. And so they think everyone who kills you thinks that he's offering service to God. And I, I dwell on this a lot. I think about this verse a lot because I think we've got a whole culture now where there's a there's a A significant portion of our culture that doesn't know what they're doing, but they think they're righteous in what they're doing. And and how can you be so upside down? How can you be so backwards when you think, and they're not quite to the point of murder, but I think they're headed that direction, and they think they're doing the right thing? Really? How can you have it so upside down and backwards? In one of his trials, he talks about this too. He kind of testifies to the attitude that he had in Acts 26, 9 through 11. He tells this story over and over again to various trials and various hearings. But of all the different renditions of this story, this is the one that really gives us his, the inside story or his thinking, his thought process. Why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? Uh, Verse 9, so then I thought to myself, here's his logic, here's his thought process, I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. What made him think that? What, What feeds that thought process here? See, well... If you have to display your zeal so that your fellow zealots, your fellow legalists, uh, they can be impressed with you. I mean, you've got you to set that bar higher. You've got to set that bar higher. So I thought to myself that I had to. Not a few things, many things. Hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did. In Jerusalem, not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison, prisons plural, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. That's significant. That verse right there has so much uh, context and so much history that goes into that. Because not just, I mean, not just anyone was a voting member. You had a bunch of non-voting members that wanted to become voting members when a spot became available. And uh, Paul said he cast his vote, that he had one of those voting spots. Say. And uh, as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. <laughs> wow, coerced blasphemy. Does that count? You know? If you torture somebody so that he says what you tell him to say, does that count? You know? what the Soviets did. (laughs) You know, these tortured confessions and, you know, if if you torture them long enough, they'll say whatever. Just make it stop. Okay, I'll sign this. Great. So now it's forced blasphemy. Oh, you're a blasphemer. You know, they tried to get Jesus to blaspheme. Tried to find accusations against Jesus. And so, um, and being furiously enraged at them, I suspect it's because he was not successful. He tried, he tried to force them to blaspheme it doesn't say he succeeded. It says he tried, and then after it says he tried, it says being furiously enraged at them. Ah, it seems to me like maybe he was not as successful as he wanted to be, that maybe he was showing a lot of zeal, but not getting all the results he wanted, and so I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. If you're not content just to drive them out of your town, you're going to chase them to the next town. Isn't that what they did in Thessalonica? They drove them out of town and then they followed them to Berea. Okay? Well, there you go. And uh, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, expressing the pinnacle of self-made acrimony. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Blameless. Here's a pinnacle of self-made testimony. All right? I am blameless. And I'll tell you all about it. (laughs) Okay? Because it's self-made. And I'm going to tell you about it. And you have to bear witness with me because you can't prove anything otherwise. Right? I don't know the quote. I, I didn't do it. You didn't see me do it. You can't prove anything. Do you know the quote I'm talking about? Okay. I ha- I think it's from The Simpsons, right? Bart. Bart Simpson? All right. Thank you for your confession this morning. <laughs> Honestly, I have never seen a single Simpsons episode in my life. However, I have seen some internet memes and I've seen some other little video clips. And at some point, there was a t-shirt I had the opportunity to purchase that had the, the kid on it that said, I didn't do it. You didn't see me do it. You can't prove anything. Which I thought was an amusing t shirt. But this is the idea. If your righteousness is based upon what nobody else can prove otherwise, <laughs> you know, if, if your whole system of righteousness is an external show whereby you spotlight how great you are and you kind of hide the other stuff. And so, ultimately, the best people at this are the sneakiest. <laughs> the most, you know, the ones that can hide the dirt. Because who, who is perfect? Nobody. Nobody. Everybody's got something. Even the rich young ruler had something. He had a money issue, a greed problem, and Jesus exposed it, and he hung his head and walked away, and he knew that he'd been caught. See, the, the jig is up when you get caught. And here's Paul in his boast And he'd never been caught. His his jig was never up. He he was always, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. And so we have here the the, uh, expression that expresses the pinnacle of self-made testimony. All right. I've got some sub-points under this. I should have left that on the other slide so you could have seen them all in parallel. Self-made sanctimony, self-made acrimony, and self-made testimony. But we have um, again Luke 18 an illustration of this and this is the the rich young ruler the guy that was runner up to Paul for Pharisaic perfection. And I think these, these things illustrate a lot particularly things that we want to be aware of things we want to guard against if the the, the the prideful, arrogant attitude starts to creep into our thinking, we need to you know confess it, uh, cast it from us and uh and have nothing to do with it. Um and you'll see what I mean here in a moment, because otherwise it's exhausting. When does it end? So a ruler, this is not just uh, and we're talking a voting member here, right? Member of the Politburo. <laughs> a ruler questioned him, saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What can I do to earn this and deserve this? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. You ever heard of those? (laughs) Yeah. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth, from my youth, Again that little clue that we have with with Paul he said he was a pharisee and the and the son of pharisees his mother and father were both pharisees how strict home is that right and that's uh that's how he was raised from from the time of his birth from the time you know he was first learning how to speak Hebrew I mean his whole every every conscious memory has been keeping the law keeping the law <laughs> all right i was joking on wednesday i mean Both mom and dad were both Pharisees. It would have been nicer if at least maybe mom could have been a Sadducee or something. You know, at least have one parent you could play off against the other. But they were both Pharisees. So there's no winning on that. And then little Saul grows up and outdo the two of them. And so all these things I've kept from my youth. And so um, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. Okay? Now this is an interesting statement because there's no law. Jesus couldn't point to a scripture that said, give away all your money. And yet, in issuing this new command, if you will, or issuing this new one last thing and and you're going to get to heaven, it's curious because, first of all, it's not true. Right? This statement is not true if he gives away all his treasure, he's not going to heaven, okay? You can't buy your way into heaven. Jesus is using an untrue statement. He's not sinning, he's not lying. He's using an untrue statement as a rhetorical device, as a teaching mechanism, okay? And it's valid. Like Rahab, her lie wasn't a sin either. So Jesus is making an untrue statement as a teaching mechanism and spotlighting the uh, the pride area that the man had in his possessions. So when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, "How hard is it for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God?" And so it's the money then that became his source of pride, that became his god, that became his his uh, his hidden issue. And he he really did. He had a heart issue of greed. He had a heart issue of of attachment to that money. And because it was a heart issue, all of his fellow you know legalists and pharisees and and rulers and and voting members and so forth none of them could call him on it none of them could point to that and say and say uh you know we're better than you or you don't measure up or you've got an issue here pal because they couldn't look upon his heart either and probably their hearts were similarly poisoned okay most of the the sanhedrin were wealthy like this guy uh when you're in high political office that's lucrative okay <laughs> and uh other ways that they made their money. So, you know, when you think about this, um, when you think about this, earning and deserving your way to heaven or being good enough to be found in God's sight, when does that end? It never ends. You know, as long as you're still alive, you've got to keep working it. You've got to keep working it to stay saved if you think you've earned it. Then you've got to work hard to keep it saved. And when does it stop? It doesn't. It's like Mosaic Law. When does Mosaic Law ever give you a uh, a, a winning, uh, a, you know, a, a game over winning screen? It's like these video games that never end. Right? You play those video games. You play Space Invaders or or Asteroids or whatever. I mean, Pac-Man, whatever. You, you're playing these games. There's a term for these games. They're called the... What are they called? The never-ending games. And Because the, technically you can't win. All you can do is... Avoid losing longer than anybody else, <laughs> and so if you are the, the one that delays defeat the longest, then you got the high score, and your initials go up there on the high score board, and then and then then you can beat your previous high score, beat your previous high score. You know you want to have the top ten names all be you, if you, you know, can dominate a particular arcade game in a particular location. That's um. That's, that's Mosaic Law right there. Because there's no way to win. 613 commandments of the law. Every time you read in the law, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. If you do this, you're dead. Do this and we stone you. Do this and we burn you. Do this and you're expelled from the assembly. Do this, do this, do this. And every don't do this with its, most of them are death. Adultery, murder, the punishment was was Death. Okay. where in mosaic law did it say when you complete all these things you've arrived never you've never arrived just tomorrow's another day to avoid not not breaking the law tomorrow's another day to avoid not getting caught breaking the law <laughs> so that you're not executed as a lawbreaker that's the whole point and so Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. Amen? What a blessing for us that when we are in Christ, He's the only one that succeeded, the only one that fulfilled the law. and We are now in Him, walking in the newness of life. The requirements of the law are fulfilled in us as we walk in Him. And that's our glory as church-age believers. And so let's understand here, when he says found blameless, you realize that that's different? Blameless is not perfect. You ever think about that? blameless is not perfected. That's a huge term. We were talking about perfecting the perfect Christ in in Hebrews last week. And here we're looking at it again. Blameless is not perfected. He doesn't say as to the righteousness which is found in the law, having been made perfected. Can't say that. Law doesn't perfect anybody. The law was never able to perfect anybody. Jesus Himself, when He was perfected, was it the law that perfected Him? No, it was learning obedience to the things that He suffered, which perfected Him to be our Savior, perfected Him to be the justifier. So blameless is not perfected. When the Father is bringing many sons to glory, is He just bringing blameless or is He bringing perfected? Okay? This is a, a key statement here. So, when you t- uh, Just to tie this in again real well with what we've been looking at in, in Hebrews, Hebrews 5. We were here last week in the 11 o'clock hour. Jesus, uh, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he was already blameless. He was born blameless. His whole life was blameless. Blameless qualified him to go to the cross as the offering, but not to go to the cross as the priest, as the justifier. To be the justifier, he had to be blameless. And having been made perfect, having been made perfect, so he's blameless, but now he's made perfect. Having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him The source of eternal salvation. Realize what that statement is? That's a becoming statement. That's like the Word became flesh. Until the Word became flesh, the Word wasn't flesh. (laughs) Okay? And until the blameless Son of God learned obedience through the things which he suffered, he was not perfected. And until he was perfected, he was not the source of eternal salvation. That's a deep statement. And and we may struggle to accept that. We say, well, hasn't he eternally been the source? Not according to this verse. It required the becoming. Having become perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. And so this is what we're talking about. And Mosaic law didn't do it. Likewise, in chapter 7, we're told law doesn't do it. Hebrews 7.11 if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood for on the basis of it the people received the law if perfection was through Levitical priesthood what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek? Realize this is a a second class condition if it's not true if but if it was true if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood why another priesthood? Why a new covenant? Okay. If if perfection came through the old covenant, if perfection came from the old priesthood, then just go with that. Make yourself perfect and come to heaven. Okay? And that's the point. It didn't, it couldn't. We can't. So we need a new priesthood. We need a new high priest, the apostle and high priest of our confession. And Jesus had to be perfected to become the source of our eternal salvation. So perfection was not through the law, okay never has been, never, never could have been, never was, never will be right this This whole doctrine, by the way, if we address this, if we embrace this, understand it for what it says, then this world's current iteration of pluralism is is nonsensical when people tell you that oh, there's many ways, there's many paths, you know, maybe the Bible's good for you, but maybe you know. The Book of Mormon's good for this person. Maybe the Quran's good for this person. Maybe all these other things. There's many paths. There's many truths. No, there is the truth. Okay? The way, the truth, and the life. There aren't even two ways. There is one way. One and only way. See? Because if there was more than one, the cross is not necessary. Right? If if there's even a second option, you don't need a thousand, you just need two. If there's two options... That means the Father could have spared His Son and not put His Son through the cross, and not perfected His Son to go to the cross. So the fact that our Savior suffered to be made fit, to be uh, made perfect, to go to the cross, it's the one and only way. And any, uh, any statement to the contrary, I think, is blasphemous. Verse 19 of the same chapter. The law made nothing perfect. That's pretty clear. (laughs) All right. Don't have to read Greek or Hebrew to read that. I mean, there it is. The law made nothing perfect. All the law does is, you know, wait for you to fall short so it can kill you. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Yes, that's our confession. We hold fast to our confession. So, we have that. Chapter 12. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, you know what this says, but do you ever think about it? Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Obviously, sin's a problem, but there's some non-sin issues, too, that we've got to lay aside encumbrances, things that aren't sinful in and of themselves, but because they tie us down or they keep us from fulfilling our ministry, we've got to let them go. Run with endurance the race that is set before us. This is our life course pursuit. We were looking at it in Proverbs last week. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. And what is he called here? The author, of course he's the source, and perfecter. Oh... Author and perfecter of faith. Look at that. See, our Savior was perfected, but He's not by Himself in that. He's not the only one. Having been perfected, what's, what's He now doing? Perfecting us. Amen. That's right. Perfecting us. The author and perfecter of faith. And remember, law didn't do it, but church-age biblical Christianity does it. Walking in the newness of life who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. See, now it's our turn. Now we learn obedience through the things that we suffer. Now we fix our eyes on Jesus. That's the hope set before us. He set his eyes on the hope set before him the joy set before him, we set our eyes on Jesus. That's the joy set before us. And so we have our application. We have our growth. We have our perfection. And by the way, if you get a little tour of heaven, if you want a little glimpse of what are you going to see if you've got a, a peak of heaven, that comes down in verse 23. Let's see. Back up to verse 18. Hebrews twelve eighteen. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, into a blazing fire, into darkness and gloom and whirlwind. Is that how you got saved? <laughs> not how I got saved. Not how any of us got saved. All right? Biblical Christianity, we're not going to a particular mountain. It's not Mount Gerizim. It's not Mount Zion. It's not Mount Sinai. It's not a mountain of wrath where fire comes down and the law is given. And to the blast of a trumpet into the sound of words which was such that uh, those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. Go up there, Moses. Come back. Tell us what, when it's over. They could not bear the command. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. Put boundaries around the mountain so their animals wouldn't go up there. To such a terrible, so terrible was the sight that Moses said, "I am full of fear and trembling." And he had to go to the top. But if you come, but you, you, me, all of us in the church age, here's us. Where have we come to? We came to a church building on Cross Park Drive in Austin, Texas. Is that where we come to? Oh, no. Yeah, our bodies are sitting here, but where are we spiritually? Where are we really? You have come to Mount Zion, the heavenly reality, not the earthly, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, to the General Assembly Wow, what's that about? And the church of the firstborn. Of course, we're the bride, we're the church. Christ is the firstborn. Who are enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all. And to the spirits of the righteous. Made what? Made perfect. It's not just washing away our sins and leaving us blameless. We are going to stand blameless, but it's bigger than that. We stand blameless and we stand perfected, made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, which he will be applying when he returns in his second advent. And to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. It's the blood that cleansed the heavenly temple. All right. So that's what we're coming to. Blameless is not perfected. We'll pick up on more of this uh, next on Wednesday because remember Satan was blameless. He was the sealer of perfection. He was blameless until he fell. And uh, perfection is God's work on our behalf. Don't feel like you've got to make yourself perfect. Try to make yourself perfect you're going to fail. Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. Okay, So Wednesday night we'll pick up on those. Thank you, Father, for your truth. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you, Father, that, uh, for reminding us that anything we can boast about in ourselves is not worth boasting about. And anything that is worth boasting about, we didn't do it. You're the one at work in and through us to willing to do of your good pleasure. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So, Father, anything that we can point to that is boastworthy is what you are doing. Father, thank you for being faithful. Thank you for working exceeding abundantly beyond all we could ask or think. Thank you for bringing about perfect results, eternal results in dimensions and ways that we can't even imagine. So thank you for being faithful, Father. I thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.